Welcome to the Set and Setting Podcast with Madison Margolin. As a journalist, Madison has spent years exploring the intersection of psychedelics, cannabis, and culture. This podcast brings together thought leaders from today's psychedelic renaissance to talk about the role of psychedelics in our inner and outer lives. You can support this podcast and find additional resources at BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Madison. Hi, everyone. I'm Madison Margolin. We're here with the Set and Setting podcast, and we have Seth Ferranti as the guest today. Seth is an ex-con filmmaker who did 21 years in federal prison for a first-time nonviolent LSD and cannabis offense. He earned three college degrees in prison, including a master's, wrote 22 books on gangsters, drug lords, and prison gangs, founded a publishing house and website, Guerrilla Convict, and started a career as a journalist writing for Vice, Penthouse, and others. After being released, he started making films. He wrote and produced White Boy, which is currently on Netflix. He currently has numerous projects in production and development. Seth, um, I'm really excited to have you today. And, you know, so the audience knows I um, originally met Seth uh, through a documentary he's working on now on the LSD trade. Um, So before we kind of get into everything, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got here, um, you know, just anything you want to share about yourself biographically, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. All right. Um, yeah, I grew up, I grew up a military brat. You know, my dad was in the military. Um, I grew up, I was born in 71, so I grew up in the 70s, you know, came of age as a teenager in the 80s. And um, kind of bounced around. I, I lived in Germany for a couple years. I lived in London for a couple years. We always kept going back to California because my, my dad was in the Navy. So I, I grew up, you know, born and raised in Southern California, except for my time overseas. And uh, I would say, I mean, I was a typical American kid, you know, kind of all American kid. I, you know, I played sports, uh, you know, baseball, football, basketball, eight ate uh apple pie you know and uh thought my country was the greatest mm-hmm. cool and so you know it, you know, just even reading your bio i was you know you said you got three degrees while you were incarcerated like what was that like sort of continuing to like grow and build yourself in that environment um you know and i you know part of it is also you know this con- this podcast kind of focuses on the legacy of ramdas and be here now and so how did, you know, what is sort of the spiritual practice that really enables you to continue to like self-realize um, in such extenuating circumstances? Yeah, I would say, you know, pretty early, I, I started using, you know, cannabis and, and LSD at a, at a young age, right? You know, like 13, 14, 15, you know, weed at 13 and then, you know, LSD around 15. And um, I think just... I don't want to, you know, sound cliche and say like spiritual awakening or anything like that. But, you know, I, I mean, the, the way our society was, especially like in the 80s, you know, I mean, there's like a certain way, you know, everything was. And, you know, you're supposed to go to college, you're supposed to, you know, get the job, you know, have the white picket fence. That was kind of like the American dream. And w- when I took LSD, you know, I kind of had, you know, that awakening where I started, you know, I started questioning things. I started seeing things differently and um you know indirectly i would say that led to to my my prison sentence you know because 
Um, I always tell people I never consider myself a criminal. I consider myself an outlaw because I broke laws that I thought were wrong. And, you know, by the time I was 15 and 16, you know, I, I started selling cannabis and I started selling LSD, you know, and mushrooms. Um, you know, I was a marijuana and psychedelics type of dude. You know, I was into the counterculture. I started following the dead. And um, all, all these things like like really go back to like, you know, that that spiritual awakening, that opening of my mind, you know, that questioning of authority, you know, I, I just, you know, by the, the mid 80s, by the time I was, you know, basically 15, 16, you know, and and everybody was like, you know, this is what life is about. This is what you're supposed to do. And, um, you know, opening my mind with psychedelics, I started questioning. I was like, well, why? Mm-hmm. You know, and then when you when you ask those questions, you know, as a 15 year old kid, you know, in 1986, you know, to to my, you know, my military dad and, and um, you know, my my mom was a teacher and I'm, I'm asking these questions and they're telling me like, oh, you got to do this. You got to do that. You know, this is the way. And I'm saying why? And they really didn't have an answer for me. So I started looking for the answers myself. And um, yeah, eventually, you know, I, I, I kept selling drugs, uh, you know, cannabis and LSD. And I ended up, I got 25 years when I was 22. You know, I was kind of like, uh, I don't want to say the rebel without, without a cause. Cause I, I did have a cause kind of cannabis and psychedelics for my cause, but you know, I was definitely, I was, I was not conforming, mm-hmm. you know, um, I thought outside the box and I think, you know, all that was because of this, you know, mind expansion that I have from taking psychedelics. Yeah. And it, and it feels, you know, just in the way that you describe the term outlaw, for instance, like your cause to me, you know, looking as an outsider, your cause was part of like being outside the law or outside a law that wasn't fair in your view. And that, you know, in a lot of people's views who are, you know, active against the drug war. And so like part of it is like you are embodying what it means to be an outlaw, even if it means continuing to like live that essence, you know, in an incarcerated situation. So, you know, curious, like in your psychedelic exploration, like before prison and during and after, like what relationship have you had to the work of Ram Dass and Timothy Leary? And like, how has that influenced you? Oh, no, I, I gravitated towards that type of stuff, you know, really early. Um, just, just the whole, the whole counterculture, you know, um, you know, Leary, Ram Dass, even, you know, like, like, like Hunter S. Thompson, you know, I was even into punk rock stuff like, like Henry Rollins. So, you know, any, anybody that was kind of like outside that box, I really, really gravitated to. And, and I can say, you know, people like Ram Dass and and Timothy Leary and, and the whole thing like that was going on in the sixties, you know, I, I mean, I miss that, you know, I wasn't even born then, but you know, in, in the eighties, I think, we, we had our own little kind of thing like that, you know, because, um, I mean, I went on tour with the Grateful Dead and um, it was just like, I mean, it was like freedom. It wasn't the same thing, but it was kind of like our version of, it, mm-hmm. you know, in the 80s. And, you know, all of, all of me and my friends, you know, follow the dead. You know, they said, you know, they called us, you know, deadheads or or whatever. But uh, all of us, we, we kind of experienced this, this freedom. And I think that freedom you know, freedom of thought, but also freedom of mind and body. I mean, that that just epitomizes, you know, what people like Ram Dass and, and Timothy Leary, you know, taught and expressed, you know, because I mean, that was that was like the uh 
you know, the, the, the famous, uh, saying the Leary, the Leary saying, uh, I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, turn on, tune in and drop out. That's it. So, you know, I mean, that was like the, uh, that was basically, you know, we came from, from that lineage, you know, from, from the people, you know, the elders now and, and, and the people that were my age, the age that I am now, like in the eighties, you know, that's kind of who, you know, I looked up to, especially on tour, you know, like, like the people that were in their, you know, forties and fifties when, when I was a young man, you know, like a, a you know, like a, a teenager. And then in, in, you know, my early twenties, before I caught my case, you know, those are the kind of people that I would talk to. And, and I wanted to know, I wanted to know about, you know, the sixties. I wanted to know about the experience because they were kind of in America, they were that, I was kind of like the first group that kind of broke free, you know, of, of, you know, the conformity or, you know, like the conservative views, you know, of like the forties and fifties and, and early sixties and kind of what was going on in America. So I believe like through, through those teachers, like, like Ram Dass and Leary who kind of, you know, told people, you know, you need to open your mind. You need to challenge things. You know, you need to challenge authority. You need to think of things differently. You know, that kind of, opened all that up. And that was really still going on when I was a teenager. And so another question I have is, you know, Ram Dass is sort of known, his narrative is that he and Leary were doing um, research with psychedelics at Harvard, went too far, they got kicked out. And Ram Dass goes to India and finds more of a spiritual path that isn't as driven by, um, by acid or doesn't revolve around acid in the same way. That's not to say he stopped doing acid actually, but just that like, he found something, you know, the idea was like finding a way to get there without necessarily having to rely on an outside substance. And so my question for you is like in the Grateful Dead community, in the psychedelic world, you know, also through your your own journalism, you're making this documentary now, like how is that received, right? Like by people for whom acid is so central to the practice and and the consciousness and then for for there to be a narrative is like, no, wait, maybe we don't need this. How do people respond to that? Um, I mean, some people, some people embrace it. You know what I mean? Some people are just druggies. They like to take drugs, you know? So, I mean, <laughs> you know, some people move on, you know, I think uh, you take enough drugs, you know, sometimes you can be like, okay, well, I'm not getting what I need from this. So I have to find it a different way. And actually I had a similar, um, experienced, you know, like I'm not trying to liken myself to Ram Dass, but I had like about 14 years in prison where I was completely stone sober, you know, like I didn't even smoke weed and um, everything that I needed, I was finding within myself, you know, I didn't have to go to outside sources and not to say, I mean, I, I probably, I don't know, man, I, I'm not going to say I tripped a thousand times, but you know, I, I probably tripped close to that. I tripped a lot you know, in my teens and, um, you know, before I went to prison, you know, I had, I had about a five, six year period where I, I was tripping on acid regularly and I, I was selling a lot of acid. So I had a lot of, uh, access to LSD and good LSD. So, you know, I, I opened my mind as, as, as much as the best of them, but, um, yeah, I did, I did have that time in prison, you know, for like 14 years and, and there were drugs around. I mean, I could have got drugs. I could smoke weed. Weed was always around. LSD was around sometime. But uh, I just chose, like, I, for that 14 years, I was like, you know, I, I just need to be myself, you know, and I need to deal with everything in life, 
you know, and I need to look inward and I need to do a lot of introspection. And I think, um, you know, I, I always like in prison, prison is, I mean, it's, 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 it's definitely like a military or, or locker room culture, you know, because you know how you have like the male alpha thing, but at the same time, you know, you live so sparse, it's almost could be like a, you could relate it to like a monk, like the way a monk lives, you know, like a Buddhist monk or something, because I mean, you just don't, everything's restricted, you, you know, there's a scarcity of resources. So you live like this, this really kind of, uh, aesthetic, you know, yeah, yeah. Or, or Spartan kind of life, you know, you just don't have a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have a lot of material belongings, you know, you can only spend a certain amount of money. I mean, you know, you have limited access to, to what kind of food you can get. So, um, yeah, so I, I really, you know, in, in prison, I really kind of lived that life for a long time, you know, where I really, you know, I watched what I ate, you know, I didn't do any, any type of drugs, you know, um, I exercised regularly, uh, you know, I, I did yoga, I did meditation. And um, I think, you know, sometimes I think now, like I'm out in the world and I'm doing all this stuff, you know, and I'm ripping and I'm running and I'm like, man, if I can just get back to that point, and I don't mean get back to that point in prison. I just mean get back to that point where I had that discipline, like within myself, within my body, mm-hmm. you know, where, where, you know, where, where my body, I felt like, you know, super healthy, you know, rest, I'm meditating, I'm doing yoga, I'm working out, I'm eating right. And now like in the world, it's just, it's just so hard, you know, cause you're doing, you know, you do so much and everything moves so fast. And so like, I think all the time, I'm like, man, if I could just like slow down, and get to that point. And I think somebody like Ram Dass, I, I think that's what he really did. You know, he had to slow down everything and he had to look at things a different way. And he just got to that point where he was really, you know, self-aware, but not only self-aware, you know, just kind of, you know, really tranquil, like w- with himself and who he is and his thoughts. And, you know, I'm, and I'm saying, even though I was in the chaos of prison, I had that you know, for, for a decade or more. And that helped me, you know, accomplish a lot of stuff I did in there with my writing and my college degrees. And it helped me, you know, to set me up, you know, for, for where I am now. I mean, it, it's such a weird comparison to make, but, you know, obviously prison isn't any sort of retreat, but I think the simplicity of life in prison, um, you know, and maybe you want to walk us through a day in the life, like they, do they put you to work in some way? Like what, it like, it seems as if because you're not out in the world that you don't have the same distractions that you would have just in regular life, you actually have the time to sort of work on yourself in these almost forced ways because what else is there to do? So like, yeah, I mean, it's actually extremely inspiring in the way that you're describing your experience in prison. I mean, it's probably the best you could have done in in the circumstances and maybe it's all, all for the better, honestly. Yeah, no, I, I always, they got a saying in prison. They say, um, you want to do the time. Don't let the time do you. Mm. So, you know, I, I always took that as, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to work. I'm going to read. I'm going to do everything, you know, to fix everything in, inside myself. Cause I mean, all of us, all of us, you know, we all have scars. We, we all have trauma. You know, we all, we all have stuff, you know, that happens in our life, you know, that, that we hold on to or we won't let go or that we, you know, take substances to kind of escape. And um, I think, you know, when, when you just kind of live that life, you know, be it, you know, in prison or, or a monastery or even, 
you know, like, like out living out in the wilderness, you know, like a, a back to the lander or living that real kind of simple life, you know, as a farmer or whatever, it kind of, uh, it makes you look inward. And when you look inward, you can study everything inside yourself. And then, you know, you can just come, come to the conclusion, like, okay, well, you know, whatever happened. I mean, I, I had a long time, you know, I got sentenced to 25 years when I was 22. So I was extremely angry and I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm, I'm still angry now. My anger kind of drives me, but I, I mean, I had to deal with that anger so that it didn't destroy me. You know, I had to learn to focus that anger in a productive way. I mean, cause so many people in life and in prison, they let that anger, they let that hurt, they let that pain, destroy them i mean everybody you see it every day you know people are addicted to drugs because they, they can't bear their life they just want to escape you know people they just want to create chaos and and drama and scream and yell and fight you know because they hate themselves and um you know it's it people just have like mental illness or whatever because of the, the burdens that these scars or drama place on them so i i really and I, and it starts, it starts with the psychedelic stuff and the opening of the mind that I experienced, you know, as a, as a teenager. And then, you know, it went into the, the prison stuff where I had the time to do the introspection. I had the time to look at myself. I had the time to become comfortable with who I am and deal with all that anger, you know, and, and trauma and, and stuff inside me so that I, I didn't, you know, self-destruct. And how did you deal with it? Like, what did the anger work look like? Um, I mean, really rage. I mean, you know, I, I could have, uh, you know, and there you see a lot of people like, you know, they just explode, you know, and, and they use violence, you know, to, uh, you know, basically like, like let that anger out, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I decided I was going to channel that anger and I use that anger, you know, I use that anger to write. I use that anger to, uh, you know, do, do the college courses, you know, I use that anger to be disciplined. I use that anger, you know, to, to work out and to do everything, you know, it, I use that anger almost for discipline, you know, so I, I tried to focus it, mm -hmm. you know, in, in positive ways and, and channel it in positive ways, ways that would help me. Cause I, I was always, you know, I think that's the one thing that psychedelics gave me, it gave me the, uh, the abilities. I'm, I'm not like a small, I'm not like a, a, a small picture guy. I'm like a big picture guy. You know, I see like the big vision. So, you know, when I was in there, I was like, I was like, what can I do, you know, for my future? I mean, okay. I had a lot of time. I had 25 years when I was 22 for a first time nonviolent offense, you know, for substances that are legal and on their way to legality now. But, um, I still, I, I, I had to, you know, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I had to figure something out, mm -hmm. you know, because so many people in that situation, they just, I mean, they just give in to their anger or they try to escape and, um, you know, they just end up, you know, self-destructing or destroying their lives or, or other people's lives. And I just, I didn't want to be that person. So I had that foresight. And really, I think, I mean, as I'm looking back, you know, I'm 50 years old now. So looking back, I mean, it was really the, the, the psychedelics that opened my mind and, and gave me that ability, you know, to look at things from outside myself, mm. you know, because I think that's the biggest problem with a lot of people. They can't look outside themselves and they can only feel what they feel and think what they think. And sometimes you, you got to look at yourself like in a mirror, you know, you got to look at yourself from outside and you got to think, okay, because anything, you know, within, when it's in your own brain, you can justify it. 
Yeah. You know, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, but you know, you got to look outside and, and think like, okay, maybe I got to look at this in a different direction. And, and were there times, you know, 25 years obviously is a long sentence and you deal with the impatience of that. So like, you know, that, that feels like a moment where like be here now really can be like a mandate and like a command, but also like something frustrating, right? Like when you're just like, I don't want to be here now. Like, I don't want to be here at all, right? Like now or ever. So like, how do you, how does be here now really play into um, dealing with something where you know you have so many years ahead of you in that same circumstance? Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically when you're in prison, you don't have a choice. I mean, you got to be here now. There's no... You know, there's no alternative. You know, it's 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 forced upon you, and um, I think I really learned. You know, to even though I had all these goals, and um, I'm I'm very, you know, like like goal orientated, and and I kind of get my self worth um, from accomplishing things. You know, that's mm-hmm. why you know I'm I'm really really prolific in especially like the creative endeavors endeavors that I do because. You know, I like I like to accomplish stuff, you know, but, um, you know, I like the end result. That's 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 kind of the big thing about me. You know, I got that big vision and I I want to complete stuff. But, you know, at the same time, being in prison, I mean, you do you have to be extremely patient. And I've learned a lot of patience in there because, I mean, you just don't have no choice. I mean, because out here, you know, you can you can be impatient and, you know, maybe bang your head against the wall or scream and yell or whatever when you don't get your way. But in there, I mean, you can't do that. If if you do that in there, you know, somebody might stab you, you know. So, I mean, you can't you really have to control yourself and you have to focus. And it's like, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a you have to discipline yourself. But at the same time, you got to. You know, be reserved. You can't say everything you want. You can't say everything you feel. You can't even like show your emotions or what you think on your sleeve or, you know, on your face, because sometimes if somebody does something and you get like a sour look or the wrong look on your face, they can take offense and they might want to stab you or fight you or something. So, um, you know, I mean, that's just prison life. But I mean, I, I think I really learned to kind of live in the moment you know, while I was in there and be patient and um, just do everything. Cause I think anything in life that you accomplish, it's like one step at a line, one step mm-hmm. at a time. A lot of people just want to jump right to the end. Yeah. You know, they want to have an idea and they want to jump right to the end, but I really learned in there. And I think that goes right along with the be here now that, you know, every little step, every little increment, you know, everything builds on the whole and it's all cumulative. And if you keep building a little bit at a time, then you're going to get to where you're going to go, you know, be it writing a book, be it, you know, getting a college degree, you know, be it, you know, working out, you know, either building muscle or losing weight or whatever you want to do, or even learning a craft or becoming better at something, you know, I mean, it takes time to do that stuff. I mean, as human beings, we're all capable of, of doing a lot of stuff, especially if we keep practicing, you know, but I think a lot of people, and I was like that probably before I went to prison in a way, you know, if, if something didn't come easy to me, you know, maybe I gave up, you mm-hmm. know, I, but in prison, I was like, okay, I want to do this. I want to become a writer. You know, I want, I want to work out. I want to be a filmmaker when I get out. So I just did every little thing I could, you know, with the overreaching goal, 
you know, being that idea I had in my head. So, you know, it was just like step by step, day by day, minute by minute. And, um, yeah, and I, I walked down, you know, I, I ended up doing 21 years, but I walked that 21 years down, you know, day by day. Cause in there, you can't, you can't look to when you get out, you just have to do, you know, everything in that moment. And when you're in there, the outside world and all the distractions and everything out here, it, it doesn't matter, man. Cause you know, not only do you have to, you know, worry about what you're trying to accomplish for when you get out, but I mean, you got to worry about your safety too in there. So, you know, you got to be really in the moment. And what, you know, switching gears a little bit, what year did you get out? So I got out, uh, 2015. So I went in in 1993, mm-hmm. you know, my case is from 91. I was a U.S. Uh, Marshall's top 15 most wanted from 91 to 93. Fake my suicide, went on the run, continued to sell marijuana for like, you know, two more years. Got busted again. Um, you know, they mashed up my prints, extradited me back to Virginia, gave me uh, 304 months. That's like 25 years, four months. So I went in 93. I was 22. Got out in 2015 when I was 43. Wow. Wow. Okay. You faked your own suicide. That's, that's, uh, some, something Mark Twain or someone do that. Something like that. Yeah. Or one of his characters, Tom Sawyer, I think something, something about a character went to their own funeral or something like that. Um, but you know, what was it like coming out? I mean, 2015, where were we in sort of the quote unquote psychedelic Renaissance? I would say that even in the past six years, things have really, um, you know, things have really changed, but like you came out pretty, pretty much into a post-prohibition paradigm, at least in regard to cannabis, um, you know, California legalized weed in 2016. So, you know, what was it like coming into a new political climate, um, both in regard to the way cannabis is being treated and also like how much research and progress there's now being made with psychedelics? No, it, it was, it was great coming out. You know, when I first came out, um, you know, I had five years probation, so uh, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't even smoke weed. I mean, I've been a stoner my whole life. You know, I've had periods of sobriety or whatever, but, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cannabis dude. I'm a psychedelic dude. So that, you know, that's my culture. You know, that's my outlook. That's my mindset. So um, when I came out, I mean, I saw everything. I mean, I, I came to St. Louis, Missouri. So, I mean, it wasn't really popping off here, but, you know, I had friends in California, you know, it was still medical when I first got out. So I thought I saw what was going on in California and I saw what was going on in Denver. And, um, you know, I just started writing, man. I started, I started writing, uh, you know, I started writing for Vice right when I first got out and I was doing a lot of pieces. I was doing a lot of pieces, you know, on drugs, you know, psychedelics, you know, cannabis reform, you know, a lot of stuff on the, the, the criminal justice system. And um, you can bet as soon as I got off probation, I actually got off probation uh, in 12 months because I was doing so good. So they let me off. Uh, I had five years probation, but they cut me loose after 12 months. And um, first thing I did was I hopped on a plane and went to Denver. Wow. Okay. You know? Um, yeah. Cause it, it was wrecked there. So, I mean, for me, I just wanted to go, I wanted to go in the shops, man. I wanted to have that experience, you know? I mean, I'm like, I'm like a stoner from the eighties. We were smoking brick weed and shit. You know, we were lucky if we got, if we got like some nice kind of from California and that usually would only be in the fall, you know, the rest of the year we were smoking brick weed from Mexico in the summer. Sometimes you couldn't even get any weed. There would be like droughts every summer, you know, where they break out like the brown brick weed, mm-hmm. you know, they would barely get you high, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah. So as soon as I got off probation, 
jumped on a plane. I told my wife, I didn't even bring my wife. You know, my, my wife, I've been with my wife since I was a fugitive, 1993. So, you know, I've been with her 28 years. She did the whole 21 years with me, you know, and uh, as soon as, you know, I got out, I came, you know, lived with her. I've been at, with her ever since. That's my girl. So we've been, we've been together since 1993. Wow. But uh, yeah, but as soon as I got on probation, it was like, you know, the, uh, it was like the winter of, of 2016 mm-hmm. and I went and, um, yeah, I went to Denver, man. I flew to Denver, man. And, um, like I, I had a buddy who lived there, you know, that I was going to stay with, but I, I just went right to the airport. I took like, uh, you know, I took the train, they, they have like the train that goes down to the city. So I took the train down to the city and I just walked around and I started going to the shops, you know, and I, and I brought some cash. And, um, I was just, that was still when like, they would have the weed in the jars, you know, and you can like look at the weed in the jars and they would take it out and weigh it for you right there. And so I just, you know, I was, I was like, okay, I'm going to buy some of this. I'm going to buy some of this. I went to about three or four shops. You know, I bought a bunch of edibles and stuff too. Cause I, I never really ate edibles. And then I just like went, I sat right on a bench, you know, in, in downtown Denver, man, and, and start rolling up joints, mm-hmm. you know, and smoking it. Cause my, my friend was a contractor. So he was working until like five and, you know, I got there early. And so I just hung out in Denver, like walking the streets all day, kind of, you know, smoking weed. I took some edibles. Then my friend, by the time my friend picked me up, like I, I was fucked up, you know, I was high like a motherfucker. I, I, I'd never done edibles. So like the edibles were like, I was like, fuck, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, but definitely, man. Um, it was definitely a trip, you know? So I did that trip and that, that was just to me, it was like, uh, I don't know. It, it Like as a stoner, you just have to do things like that. If you do a long time in prison, that was just like something that was necessary. You know, not only did I want to do it, but it was necessary for me to do it because this is a plant and this is a substance, you know, that I championed, that I risked my life for, you know, that I put myself in jeopardy for, you know, just to, to supply, you know, to other people. And not to say, you know, I, I didn't make money because, I, you know, I made money. Everybody, you know, money is a good motivator, but I was more the type of person I did stuff because I thought it was righteous, you know, to me, LSD, mushrooms and marijuana were the righteous drugs. You know, I didn't think they should be illegal. You know, I thought it was bullshit. So, I mean, that's why I sold them. You know, I, I was at college age. That's what I did. I, I, went, I sold marijuana and LSD and mushrooms at colleges. That was kind of my thing. So definitely when I got out, I went to Denver. I flew home and then uh, two weeks later. I, f- I flew to San Francisco and h- stayed with one of my buddies there. The only thing when I went to Frisco, it was, it was still medical. So, uh, you know, they hadn't, I think they had passed, you know, the, uh, recreation, but the stores, you know, was still medical. So that sucked because I couldn't go in the stores, but still, you know, I went with my friend and, um, mm-hmm. you know, I just gave him money. He bought me, he had a medical card. So that was like my, my, my two big things I did right when I got off probation. So, you know, speaking of San Francisco, it's where we met each other, right? When we were doing the interviews for your documentaries. So, you know, I kind of wanted to talk to you about your creative work. Um, you're working on a couple projects right now with regard to LSD, cannabis. Um, you know, we, you already, you did White Boy, which we can talk about as well. So like, like why, you know, this is obviously your passion, right? Like this is, before before prison during prison after prison like this is kind of seems to be like the themes around these substances and the trade and the culture 
are really like what enable you to like make art and what it's almost like your muse as, as far as the way that I'm seeing it. So, you know, what have you, especially with regard to the LSD documentary, um, why don't you just like tell us a little bit about that and like what what have you learned um, in doing it that maybe you didn't know through even just being in the culture of it for so long as well? All right, so um, I got this documentary. I've been calling it the secret history of the LSD trade, but maybe that title you know might change. So um, I got I got into it because. You know, when I was a kid in the late 80s and uh, I was on a lot, you know, going to the shows, I mean, you just heard, uh, you know, you heard about all these legends. I mean, of course, the psychedelic culture, you know, we knew about the rum, knew about the Timothy Leary's. I mean, these goons were very well publicized. I mean, they had the books that we all read. You know, they were on, you know, different TV shows or documentaries or whatever that I watched. But um, there were these other dudes, like these uh, more mysterious dudes, you know, like these underground chemists or like these, you know, famous, uh, you know, distributors of LSD who, you know, you would hear their names. You would never see them, but you would hear these guys' name and, and everybody on the lot would talk about these guys like, you know, reverently, you know, and, and some of these guys were like, uh, you know, like um, Owsley. You know, like like Owsley Bear Stanley. I mean, he was this dude. I mean, he was this underground chemist from from the '60s, and then you know he he created the Wall of Sound for the Grateful Dead, and he was their sound man, and 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 he was just like he was just like this counterculture, you know, underground outlaw legend, you know. And and I started hearing about him on tour, and the people would talk about him, and um. I don't even think he was on tour, even working with the Grateful Dead, you know, then I'm not 100% sure. But I mean, you never saw this dude. People just talk about him. And sometimes you see like the older, you know, people who are my age now, you know, who were back around in the 60s. And they would just tell like all these crazy stories uh, about this guy. And and he was so like mysterious, like there were like barely even any pictures of him. Mm -hmm. So it, it was just like crazy. And And for me, you know, being a, a cannabis and an LSD and a, and a mushrooms guy and, you know, and a distributor and, you know, whatever they said, I'm a drug dealer, you know, whatever they want to call me. Um, you know, that's what they called us back then. You know, I kind of, I emulated this dude because, you know, we, we wanted to be that kind of outlaw counterculture figure, you know, me and my friends. So like, I remember, you know, I'd be like shying away. Oh, don't take my picture. You know, because I wanted to be like Bear, because you never saw any pictures of Bear. So, like, who, you know, you just heard his name. So, I want to be the same type of dude. And there was this whole kind of like, uh, you know, mentality and, and mindset, you know, on the scene with 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 us who were in the drug trade, and um, you know, some some of the other you know big names that we heard about, you know, like like a Tim Scully, you know, or or like a a Leonard Picard, like all these, you know. Un underground chemists, you know, or, you know, guys like, like Mike Randall, you know, you know, you know, these guys were just, uh, I mean, these were like my heroes. I mean, you want to call them anti-heroes, you know, whatever. But to me, these were like, these were like the legends of the culture. And, and like I say, I know I got a lot of my friends, like they're really into the Grateful Dead music. I mean, the Grateful Dead music, I, I was okay, but I was more, I was on the scene you know, for, for the culture, for, for the drugs, 
you know, for the the outlaw culture. That was my thing, you know. I mean, I I mean the music was cool. I mean, but you know, I like all types of music. I like hip hop. I like heavy metal. I'm not like for the music. I'm not like a diehard deadhead for the music. I've never been that type of dude, you know. But I was there for the culture. I was there, you know, I wanted to be these guys that I heard about these legendary people that you never saw that were like invisible in real life. That's who I wanted to be. I always say I'm in it for the shakedown. (laughs) My friends keep inviting me to fish shows. I guess that's the closest you get nowadays. And I don't, I don't care about fish, but I want to go to the shakedown and, and meet people. I mean, that's really like where I think you get the characters. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a culture, man. It's a scene. That's, that's what I, I gravitated towards. And, um, yeah, just, so I, I had all this knowledge, you know, and then boom, I got, I got whacked, you know, went to prison and I started writing in prison. So, you know, but I still have like all this, uh, you know, this counterculture lore, this counterculture legend in my head. And, um, you know, when I, when I got in prison, I mean, there's some deadheads and some LSD, you know, weed guys in prison, but I mean, it wasn't a lot, you know, I mean, when I first went there, I mean, the prison system was basically all African-American, you know, for crack. I mean, that was a big thing they were going after. And then, you know, you saw a lot of mafia dudes, you a lot of gangsters, you know, gangbangers, stuff like that. So I started seeing, you know, all the kind of pop culture stuff that was, you know, coming out around these guys you know because because it was i mean i was mostly on the east coast so there'd be like you know joe Smo mafia dude like on the block on my block and i you know everybody's talking about him and i'm like well who's this dude so you know i call up my mom and she orders me the books or whatever so i start reading the books on him and then and then the same thing you know with with, with a lot of the you know street legends or the colombian drug lords or like or like the big gang bangers you know i was in prison so that that was what i read i, I mean i was reading all that like they call it true crime now, but I was reading all that stuff. Like when I first got locked up in the prisons in the early nineties, you know, I was like a true crime junkie, but mm-hmm. you know, I was locked up with all these dudes. So I just wanted to read about them. You know, I mean, they would tell me stories too, but I wanted to read, you know, the other stuff, you know, I was kind of obsessed with that kind of stuff. And as I'm kind of, you know, in this world and, and, um, you know, reading all this stuff and around all these people, that's when I, I did you know, I started writing, I started writing a lot about a lot of the American, you know, crack dealers, you know, they were kind of lionized in a uh, hip hop lore, like gangster rap in the mid nineties that, that I was locked up with. And then, um, but the whole time, you know, this counterculture, you know, these legends of acid or like these chemists and all, you know, it's like reverberating in my mind, you know, it's in the background because you know, that they're not front and center. You might, you know, if you had like three deadheads, on a compound, you were like lucky. You know what I'm saying? I mean, cause they had us all spread out. We knew each other and we knew, you know, we knew who was a rat, who wasn't a rat. We knew where different people were, you know what I'm saying? Cause we had that type of community and that type of communication, but uh, yeah, it just, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't, it wasn't front and center, but you know, that was still my culture. So the whole time that was like going on, uh, you know, in the, in the back of my mind, and, you know, I started writing all these different books. I, I started writing, you know, about myself. I started writing about, you know, prison gangs, gangsters. And, um, you know, I started, you know, getting some success and, and recognition, you know, from the outside world. But this, but at the same time, like my culture, like what I was about, you know, was still like, like in my mind. And so probably about, you know, 10, 15 years in, you know, I'm like, man, I get this idea you know, that I want to do this LSD doc. And, and, you know, I'm watching too, because sometimes like when you get ideas, like you're in there, you know, 
and um, I'm watching what's going on in the world and I'm like hoping in my mind, I'm like, man, I hope nobody, you know, takes this idea and does it before I get out, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I'm just waiting, you know, and I'm planning it. And, uh, you know, I get my master's degree and my master's degree was like really like, uh, you know, script writing, film heavy, cinematic type courses. You know, I, my master's degree is like basically liberal arts, but, you know, I kind of concentrated on all the uh, film stuff as much as I could in there you know, no hands-on stuff, but, you know, just like learning, writing, stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, I had this idea in my head basically the whole time since the early 90s. And then I got out, you know, I started doing a lot of journalism for Vice, you know, making money, you know, kind of living, getting my life back together. Um, luckily, right when I came out, you know, um, making a murder had, had just blew up. So it was like, you know, I got out 2015, like right when kind of true crime is like blowing up. And plus I had this backlog. I had all these books that I wrote in prison, you know, all these articles on true crime. So a lot of filmmakers started coming at me, you know, cause they, they want to, you know, they want to come at me and, you know, get me to be in their documentary or, or talk or see what kind of ideas or what type of access. And, um, through that whole thing, I, I, I hooked up with Sean Reck and transition studios and I, I made white boy and, Sean Reck really took me under his wing and, uh, you know, mentored me. He's, he's a ninth, nine-time Emmy-winning uh, director, you know, regional, like mm-hmm. Ohio, not national, but he won nine Emmys in Ohio State for his work. And, and he mentored me and, and trained me and took me under his wing when we made White Boy and showed me how to make a film. You know, I knew how to write. I knew how to tell a story, but I didn't know how to make a film. And But that whole time, I got this LSD idea in the back of my mind and you know I'm, ju- I'm just waiting you know I'm just waiting and then um you know eventually uh another one of my friends Tim Tyler who we actually wrote I wrote about his case while he was in for Vice and I had told him about this LSD doc idea I had while we were both still in like writing back and forth and um can you I explain knew, I knew- quickly what what who Tim Tyler is for the audience like what his case was in a nutshell yeah tim tyler tim tyler had a life sentence for lsd he was around the same era as me like uh late 80s you know early 90s same age as me i didn't never knew him on the street you know but but he was on the lot so i mean he was you know the same time in the same era we were doing the same thing mm-hmm. you know but he got busted and he got life sentence you know where i only got 25 years so he never thought he was getting out and um you know, I knew, I knew about him. I knew about his case. Um, you know, all of us LSD guys, we kind of knew each other, you know, by reputation or, or through mutual friends inside, you know, as people do time and get transferred and they say, Oh yeah, so-and-so's here. So-and-so's here. So I, I knew about Tim. Um, and then he got, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, uproar about his case. Cause he was really, he wasn't that big a drug dealer. You know, he just got popped like three times in a row and, and he got like that three strikes you're out federal law and got a life sentence, you know, for just, you know, a couple thousand hits maybe. And um, so kind of the whole Grateful Dead community rallied behind him, you know, to, to get him out. And uh, eventually he got he was a, a nonviolent offender, too. And eventually he got a pardon from Obama in 2018. So this is like when I'm out, I'm, I'm, I'm doing white boy, you know, I'm learning how to make documentaries, you know, and I knew some people, but. Like I say, I, I knew who a lot of the people maybe that I wanted to get in contact with, but, you know, I didn't have a direct connection to them. And then, um, 
you know, Tim, Tim did though, because in the Grateful Dead community, I mean, everybody knows who Tim is. I mean, he's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you want to call it famous or infamous, you know, in the Grateful Dead community, because they kind of all banded together, you know, to, to work on getting him out. And um, so when Tim got out, I knew Tim, you know, had all these connections. So I knew, and I knew because of the notoriety of his case and the pardon and stuff, I knew that he could open up a lot of doors and maybe I couldn't open, you know, myself. So, um, you know, especially with a lot of the elders in the community. So, um, and me and Tim, we had talked about this doc anyhow, you know, I just, you know, at the time I never thought he was going to get out. So when he got out, I was kind of like, I saw that as a time. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to do this now. I'm like, bro, you're out. I'm like, I know how to do this. I go, um, you know, I got a little bit of funding. So, you know, I got with him and um, we contacted all the right people and he made all the right product, uh, right introductions. And, and we did the first shoot uh, before COVID. And you know, we, we, did, we did the first shoot at Mark McLeod's house and for in those San Francisco in the hate. Who don't know who Mark McLeod is. Uh, he's another one of these acid legends. Um, he has the world's largest collection of LSD blotter art in his home living room in San Francisco. It's in the mission, actually. Um, and uh, I, I wrote an article about him for Double Blind a little while ago. But he's he's a character if I ever met one. Um, awesome. An awesome article. Yeah, it's awesome, awesome character, honestly. Um, but, you know, one thing that I'm picking up on, and this is also through my own experience, I have a friend who's also, you know, in the acid chemistry world um, and reading, you know, Roni Stanley's memoir. Uh, Roni Stanley was the longtime partner um, of Owsley Stanley. She has a child with him. And the memoir is called uh, Owsley and Me, My LSD Family. And you hear about these acid families, right? Like other drugs have cartels. Um, the whole distribution, production, whatever is centered around the cartel. You hear about that with, you know, crack cocaine, other stuff. With the acid, it's the acid family. And so I wanted to kind of ask you, like, how is that representative of both LSD culture, but also um, the essence of the of the substance itself, right? Like, I think it's kind of engenders this communal like banding around a, a character a person the way you said people were banding around Tim to try to get him out of jail you know the way again like Owsley was working with with Roni and another one of his partners Melissa and it was sort of the three of them and it's this little family and you know others others too in the in the um LSD production distribution uh community um just the the uh the culture is different. I would, I would say. Yeah, no, there, there's, you know, I, I, I knew about the families like way, way back in the late eighties. And, um, that's what they do. They, they call it families. Like, like how you said, you know, and, you know, and other things they call it cartel, they call it a gang, they call it mafia. And I, and I'm going to tell you that this is what the difference is. You know, if, if you're in the cartel or you're in the mafia or you're in a gang and you snitch on people, a lot of times you're going to get killed, you know, with this grateful dead family thing. I mean, it's nonviolent. I mean, you know, these people are outlaws, you know, they, they grow weed and, you know, they, they deal in illicit substances, you know, like LSD and mushrooms and stuff like that, you know, but um, I mean, there's tons of people, you know, that, that have snitched on these cases and none of these people have been killed. 
mm-hmm. you know, just whatever. I mean, they get they get ostracized, you know, they get they get, you know, kicked out of the community. But, you know, that it just shows a difference, you know, that you were trying to hammer home. You know, that's why these are called families and not gangs or drug cartels or mafia, because, you know, when you're in a drug cartel or, or mafia, you know, if, if you mess up some money. If you, uh, you know, something, a shipment doesn't go right. Mm-hmm. You know, if you rat, you get. But, you know, in these families, that doesn't happen because, you know, they look like families. You know, people people mess up stuff all the time. You know, maybe they don't let them deal in that trade anymore. But, you know, I mean, I mean stuff happens and it's just not the violence isn't there because it's it's the whole mindset. Like, you know. We're pushing drugs. It should be legal anyhow. Right. You know, and are legal now or are gaining legality now. So that, that's always been the mindset. You know, like like dudes, like these chemists, like like Bear and Leonard, I mean, they didn't mess with heroin. They didn't mess with cocaine. You know, that was not their trade. You know, their trade was LSD. You know, they were pushing something that can enlighten people. You know, they can open people's minds. So, you know, that's a big difference because... You got to look at it. It's it's where you're coming from. You know, a lot of the cartels, a lot of the mafias, a lot of the gangs. I mean, they're just, you know, they're just trying to make money. And a lot of these dudes are crazy. They're just like violent psychopaths. And they they get in these criminal families and it allows them, you know, to do what they do. Like they're looked up to for doing all this psychopath serial killer stuff, you know. So that's where they're coming from. They're coming from chaos. Mm-hmm. We're with these families, the people that are you know, growing cannabis and pushing cannabis and, and, and making LSD and pushing psychedelics. It's coming from a totally different place. It's coming from a place like, look, we want world peace. You right. know, if everybody trips on LSD, maybe we can have world peace. So, I mean, it's just, it's two different ends of the spectrum. You know, the, I mean, the government, you know, and, and society has branded us, you know, all criminals and outlaws and put us all you know, on this side of the law, but it's, it's two different spectrums, man. It's, it's totally opposite. You can't even compare even, even in, as I've been, uh, you know, doing the interviews for this, the LSD trade doc I'm working on, I interviewed a, a famous DEA agent named Frank Panessa and he's famous for going undercover with the mafia, right? That's like his claim to fame. He was a dude, he made the pizza connection case. Mm. So early in his career, and I interviewed him for this other doc I'm working on called Dopeman, you know, which is about the mafia and heroin. And I, I didn't even know he had anything to do with LSD. And, you know, I was telling him about this LSD project and I showed him a little sizzle and he was like, oh, you know, he saw Alzen. He's like, oh, yeah, I know that, dude. I busted him like way back, you know, in 1968. So this dude, like in the beginning of his career on the East Coast, you know, when he first started going undercover before he got into the mafia stuff. You know, he had busted Owsley. So, you know, I got him on camera and I actually asked him, I was like, man, let me ask you some questions about him. And and he even told me one of the questions I asked him, I was like, look, man, what would you say the difference is between like these outlaws like Owsley and, you know, these mafia guys? And he was like, he was like, man, it's night and day. He goes, you know, these mafia dudes will like kill you for a dollar. He goes, you know, this dude, Owsley, he was just doing something that he believed in. He was like, even when I arrested him, you know, he just came with me. You know, he was polite. He, he, he was like, I, I didn't have any fear that he was going to try to hurt me or, you know, run away or anything. You know, he was like a perfect gentleman. So, 
you know, it just shows you the, the, the two extremes. And even though, you know, society or law enforcement or the government will say, you know, we're all on this side. I mean, we're really not. It's, it's, it's too big a difference. That's like, I, I go back to the thing, like, that I always tell people, I never considered myself a criminal. Mm-hmm. I've always considered myself an outlaw because I broke laws that I thought were wrong. You know, I never carried a gun. I've never, you know, been a violent dude except, you know, to defend myself. You know, I've never perpetrated violence. I've never had a criminal organization. You know, I've never given orders or, you know, ordered people to be beat up. You know, that's what criminals do that stuff. Criminal organizations do that type of stuff. That's what the mafia does. You know, what I was involved in, you know, outlaw stuff, you know, with the Grateful Dead families. I mean, none of that stuff happens. And, you know, I, I'm kind of curious because like occupying sort of this middle ground between the um, LSD culture and, you know, more kind of like drug cartel culture are people in the cannabis industry, um, you know, where there is outlaw culture, there are hippies, there's sort of people on all sides of the spectrum who are in it for various reasons. Um, and so I know you're also working on on some interviews and documentary uh project you know documenting project in regard to cannabis so like what you know what are you seeing like as it compares like with both cannabis consciousness and cannabis culture as compared to uh these two sides of the you know the acid versus like other drug um uh spectrums oh yeah so i'm doing this other doc um it's called tangle roots right now it's gonna be a docuseries too and uh it's it's about it's about southern humboldt it's about humboldt county it's about the emerald triangle you know it goes all the way back you know, to the back to the landers, into the uh, war on drugs era, the war on drugs era and the militarization of, of Humboldt County and the Emerald Triangle, all the way up to, you know, medical marijuana and legalization and w- what's going on now and how the small farmers are struggling. But, you know, I, I've I've known about Humboldt, you know, I knew I grew up in Southern California, so I knew about Humboldt since 1983. I even when I was on the East Coast, uh, I was even getting Humboldt, but it was shipped out there you know, through my homeboys in San Francisco. So um, I even went to reggae on the river a couple of times in the late 80s. So, you know, I knew all about Humboldt. It was always like this uh, mythical, you know, marijuana mecca to me, you know, that grew this awesome, you know, sun-grown organic, you know, bud. Um, But as I started doing this documentary, which I just started this summer, um, I found out, you know, I, I knew about the Back to the Landers and what they call the Back to the Landers were a lot of the the hippies, the people, you know, from the psychedelic revolution, late 60s, early 70s, who just kind of wanted to like, you know, fuck off, basically, you know, they, they, they didn't want the American dream, they didn't want the white picket fence, they didn't want to work for a big corporation, you know, they, they, they didn't want to go to college, you know, some of them, a lot of more college students, and they just quit. And they call them back to the landers because they just moved out to Northern California. They had these big communes. They started growing weed. You know, now, you know, they, they've had kids and, and their kids have had kids. And so what I found out there, it's almost like this. Um, I mean, it's outlaw, definitely outlaw culture. Like I, I really, uh, the people that I really get along with, and we have a lot of the same values. We stand for a lot of the same things. I mean, these people, they have, they have, uh, I mean, they stand by their convictions. There's not wishy-washy. I mean, you got to think, I mean, this was the area of Humboldt County that was supplying 60% of the gross uh, national dis- domestic product, you know, of, of cannabis in this country, you know, ever ever since the 80s, like into the 90s, 
you know, until recently. So, um, I mean, these people are, are diehard, you know, they went through the war on drugs, you know, it's a little area, hum, Southern Humboldt, and, and it, it was targeted with helicopters, the DEA, you know, the National Guard, they had all these things, Operation Green Sweep, everything. So, I mean, these are like a really sturdy, you know, uh, people who, who stand by what they believe in. And what I found out there, it's almost like this, um, like I say, all outlaws, but it's almost like, it's like there's two groups. It's kind of like the cowboys and the hippies. But in a way, they've kind of melded together. You know, because because the dudes from, from a lot of the dudes from Humboldt, I mean, they're country boys. I mean, like they fish, you know, the ones that don't have criminal convictions. You know, they hunt, they shoot guns, they like their guns. It's like the you Wild know, West out there. Lots of pit bulls and guns and, you know, yeah, people. Rottweilers. Yeah, I mean, dogs. like. I've spent a lot of time up in Humboldt and it seems like they, you know, it's not so much like the the happy hippie culture that you get down in San Francisco. It's a little bit more rough. It's country living. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, countries, but I mean, there, there's a hippie elements because half the people that went there were, were like the hippies that went out there and started their families. But it's almost like, like I tell people, it's like they're, they're country boys. You know, they drive trucks, they, they have guns, they like to fish, you know, they have you know, Rottweilers, you know, pit bulls, other big dogs. But, um, you know, at the same time, uh, I mean, they like reggae. You know, it's almost like, uh, you know, they, 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 they like reggae music. You know, I mean, you got, a, you got a, a bunch of deadheads up there too, but you know, the ones that aren't deadheads, that's what they, you know, they, they like reggae. They like to smoke weed. You know, it's almost, I tell people it's like, um, it's like Duck Dynasty meets Cheech and Chong. <laughs> you know right. and yeah. and you, you kind of have these groups you know that like you know the the hippies and the cowboys but the cultures have have kind of merged you know and even some like you know some some people that i interviewed for that doc you know that have legal farms now like you know they're straight country boys you know but like their parents were the back to the landers their parents are still hippies Mm-hmm. So that's how they were raised, but they were just raised, you know, like in this outlaw community. So, you know, they are, they're a little bit more hard edged, but like I say, a lot of the hippies, you know, a lot of the grateful dead families are, are outlaws too. So, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of the same thing. You, you know, I think in, in, in Humboldt and Emerald Triangle, you know, you, you do have a, a bad element there, but a lot of that bad element, it's, it's outsiders that come in. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the people that have been there, you know, two, three generations, I mean, they're the type of people like, like their word, their word is bond. If they tell you something like you don't need a contract, if you do business with them, you don't need a contract. They honor their word. They're like some of the most honorable, down to earth, real people that you'd ever meet, you know, but they, they've had to deal with all types of stuff because of the area, because, you know, the you know so many people have went up there to grow weed you know with bad intentions you know just sell it you know criminals cartels you know so they and the dea the government they've had to deal with so much but i'm telling you some some of the best people i've met just like in the same regard like with the lsd documentary and and all the grateful dead family people you know like the people you mentioned like, like mark and uh you know roni you know and tim and a lot of other people you know, that I, I've met through them. I mean, just, just some of like, you know, the best people, even, you know, like I interviewed you and your dad, you know, like, like your dad is like, just, you know, he's one of the most real, you know, 
honest people. Like you just look at this guy, like this dude, your dad has been champion and fighting for weed and trying to help people that got busted. I mean, since like the late sixties. So it's just like, you know, these people that take that stuff on themselves, man. And, you know, they don't let society change them. They say, no, this is wrong. You know, and, and I think that that all goes back to like the be here now mentality, because when you open your mind and you get enlightened and you decide you're going to be here now, you don't need the government to tell you what's wrong. You can make your own decision. And that's what a lot of these people did in the 60s. They made their own decision. You know, they, they followed Ram Dass and Timothy Leary's teaching and they, they did the LSD from these underground chemists, you know, like, like Alzi and, and Tim Scully and Leonard Picard. And, you know, they, they said, you know, this is wrong. We're going to make our own decision. You know, we're going to be here now and, and we're going to champion, you know, this plant. We're going to champion psychedelics. We're going to champion this way of life and we're going to stand. And, and if you look at it, you know, down a tunnel, from now till then, I mean, they took their stand. I mean, it took a long time, but they took their stand. But look where we're at now. And I was going to say, know? you know, the Back to the Land movement, I know a lot of the uh, people up there also have been involved with stuff like Rainbow Gathering and, you know, starting these sort of communes that to me, you know, having been to Rainbow, having also visited the the Back to the Land communes up north and, you know, um, reporting on the the movement of sort of communal living that that is like the truest expression of psychedelic values put into practice right like when you're living in harmony with nature with other people kind of outside a system that you know this is debate within the psychedelic world whether capitalism and psychedelic consciousness are diametrically opposed but when you're really like creating a life that in practice reflects the consciousness that you come to under the influence of cannabis and psychedelics and whatnot, like that it really is like the promise of of what we can do with this consciousness, right? Because is it just enough to be here now and drop acid, get high on weed, whatever? Or is it like, okay, so like what do we do with that now? And so, you know, if the here and now isn't something that you want to be in, if if the system surrounding your your present moment is something that you take issue with or isn't really reflective of your values, I think then then it's like, okay, so what's next? And so for me, like seeing the cannabis culture up in Humboldt and in other places is really like a reflection of putting that all into practice and kind of blessing the 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 present moment, the here and now with with the um with the effort that we want to see kind of like be the change you want to see in the world, right? So, you know, that that that's the promise to me of like this kind of consciousness and that's not to say that it doesn't come without like, you know, a shadow side. And, you know, it's not something we talked about so much here, perhaps in your case, the biggest shadow side of cannabis and LSD is the potential to get busted, God forbid. But like, um, you know, I think playing with like the different elements of, of what um, these substances kind of bring to the table and bring to mind and heart is really, you know, what gives life meaning and what makes the culture what it is. And, and so for me, like that's that's what's been so exciting watching watching you do the work that you do and engaging with all of these characters is really learning from that and opening up to them. Just my take. <laughs> yeah. No, I just try to. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. You know, the the, the 21 years that, that I did in prison has, has given me access, you know, to people that um, 
most filmmakers wouldn't get access to, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's been a boon in that, that regard, but, um, you know, I, th- I think two people just take me, um, you know, I'm just the type of person. I mean, I, I do stuff that I'm passionate about. So, you know, I've, I've always been passionate about this culture, you know, cannabis is psychedelics. I've, I've always been that type of dude. So now I want to share, you know, my, my work, my, my documentary stuff is, um, you know, that's what it's just, I want to share, you know, this, these stories, but also I want to educate people. I want to, I want to share it to the world, you know, why, you know, I, I gravitate towards this stuff, you know, why I like this stuff. It's even like the same thing for the, for the white boy documentary that I did, you know, I, I was writing about white boy Rick's case and the injustices of it when I was in prison. Mm-hmm. I continued writing about it when I got out of prison. So when I had the opportunity to make the movie, you know, that's, I, I wanted him out of prison, you know, so that's why I made the movie. You know, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm like say, you know, I wanted to learn how to make movies too. So, I mean, you know, I had my own personal agenda, but you know, it was also the bigger picture. He shouldn't be locked up. So it's pretty much everything I do, you know, there has to be that uh, kind of theme and that passion behind it. Cause you know, um, like, like I say, I'm the type of person, you know, I, I stand behind my convictions, you know, and I stand firmly and, you know, if people don't like it, they don't like it. You know, that's, that's no problem with me. You know, I'm not going to budge. Yeah. Well, I, I respect that. So, um, is there anything else that we didn't talk about or you want to add or discuss or just, you know, just get out, get your word out on it? Mm, I think we're good. Cool. I think we're good. Yeah. Just, I mean, look out, you know, anybody, if you want to, you want to check out my books, if you want to read about, you know, gangsters, um, sethronte.com, gorillaconvict.com. You know, what about you can check on out social my media website. also? Oh yeah, Seth, Seth Ferrante by name, S-T-T-H-F-E-R-R-A-N-T-I. You can follow me, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, I'm working on all these films. Uh, I, got, I got another film, Nightlife. It's going to be my directorial debut. It's going to come out probably early next year. It's actually about the violence here in uh, North St. Louis. I followed a group of violence interrupters. This um, minister named the Reverend Kim McCoy, we follow him around at night. He walks the streets. He has an organization called Nightlife. They walk the streets from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights in the most violent areas of St. Louis. We follow them around for two years with cameras, you know, and um, so that that's his story. And, you know, they, but it's also about a lot of the issues that have been plaguing uh, our nation, you know, police brutality you know, the, these areas, you know, systematic oppression, you know, um, institutional racism, you know, this film is, is about all this stuff. And, and really that like the reason I made this film is because when I first went in, in 93, the federal prisons were 75, 85% African-Americans. And, you know, the media wants to portray all these guys, you know, the young black male, you know, like they're all thugs or this or that man. I was in there with all these dudes, you know, some of these dudes, you know, they're nerds. They like science fiction. They like comic books. You know, they want to play Dungeons and Dragons. So I'm saying, man, people are people. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. You know, it doesn't matter how you dress or or how you talk or what type of music you like. So that's what I'm making this movie, Nightlife. I made it because, uh, you know, I've been with these guys. I know these guys. 
You know, these guys, you know, African-Americans have been getting a, a bad rap in this country, you know, since the jump. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to show, I mean, they're, they're people like, like everybody else. And you know, you it doesn't matter what the color of your skin. I hear you. And, and you mentioned, I just wanted to make sure you, you were saying something about your books as well. You. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I got all my books, uh, you know, Supreme Team. Prison Stories, Street Legends, Volume 1 and 2. I, I got a whole series of books on, uh, you know, African-American gangsters. And uh, I got a new book just came out called Criminal Escapades. It has a lot of articles, um, a lot of chapters on mafia guys, uh, you know, f- uh, famous prison gangs like La M.A., you know, Mexican mafia, some some biker gang stuff. So it kind of covers a whole gamut, you know, of organized crime and, and gangs and gangsters. But uh, that just came out actually uh, October 10th. Wow. So, um, Congrats. yeah, so I mean, I, I got a ton of stuff, man. I got, you know, I'm moving into films. I got all these films coming out now. So, you know, I'm just, uh, I don't know. Some people say I'm a really, you know, great writer, awesome writer or whatever. But I, I just think, you know, I'm, I'm very prolific. I know a lot of people that are way better writers than me. You know, I'm just very prolific. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and you know, my, I do quality stuff too, but, you know, I know a lot of people that are way better writers than me, you know, but no, but look, I don't know, you're, you're getting the word out. You're the, look as, as from one writer to another and a journalist to another journalist. I mean, I'm it's so in awe of the work that you do and it's so, it's so prolific and it's so inspiring and you just, you have the right eye for the right people and you're just telling stories that need to be told. And um, I can't think of, too many other people who would do a better job of that so really thank you for the work thank that you're you. doing yeah yeah and thank um you. i everyone in the audience really like look look up seth um sethferranti.com and also on social media and look out for the documentaries that he has coming out soon and by the time this um this uh episode launches you know we'll be able to also hopefully have more info on on what's what's brewing so Thank you, Seth, and thank you, everyone, for listening.